Blog Talk Radio. Drinking coffee, I always wind in a blessing line. The answer can't be that hard to find. Oh, life is full of misery. Mm-hmm. Like we're drinking coffee, yeah. When I order decaf, the waitress is just laughs in my face. I'm sipping her. edition of the Indie Cafe on Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio. This show will be available afterwards on iTunes and also on Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio. And um, I have John Cruz and I also have my co-host from New York, Spencer Dre, in the studio. And uh, John's really interesting. I was talking to him earlier and he's on a little bit of a whirlwind of a tour right now. And he's done some really amazing work with some really great people. And uh, we're going to be ending the show with a really, I was talking to him about a really cool song. Sorry, my voice is going a little bit. But um, we're going to be ending, (laughs) John, you can relate to that, I'm sure. We're going to be ending the show with a really cool song. So I'm hoping that everyone stays uh, tuned in. The chat room's open if you want to call in. It's 347 Six seven seven one zero three six. And with that, I'm going to bring John into the studio. John, are you there? John, I'm losing my voice like you now. (laughs) Too much. Try some some throat throat. coat. 
I know. Now I'm going to bring, no, I'm going to have coffee. Now I'm going to bring Spencer in really quick. Spencer, you there? Hi. Yeah, hi, Hal. Hi. hi, John. Hey, hey. <laughs> Spencer sounds like he's like, you know, on, he's, he's, he hasn't had his coffee yet. <laughs> I wrote that song in, in San Francisco. Oh. I wrote that song in San Francisco. I went to a place to try to, try oh. to quit drinking coffee because you know it's such a great coffee town and uh, I, oh it I, is and and uh, everywhere you went you had that incredible smell you know and mm-hmm. it was like it was impossible to drinking coffee and yeah. you're ironically in san francisco today and you're playing yes <laughs> you are yeah and um i wanted to ask you really quickly who played on that song with you the amazing saxophone player isn't he amazing? That's George Young. George Young played, uh, he was, I think that he was the original saxophonist on um, Saturday Night Live, but before that, uh, he's, George he's was awesome. the saxophone. Yeah, he was the saxophone player on Yakety Yak, Don't Talk Back. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's a senior. Incredible. He's, he's a senior, and he's a pro. He's been, he's played with all kinds of people, and I was really lucky to get him on that session. Well, that that song is really rocking it, let me tell you. And um, as we were talking earlier, um, Spence, I don't know if you heard the Repo Rodeo song, um, the other song that we're going to end with. It's all instrumental. Oh, it's so good. I love it. Yeah, I love your album, John. It's a great album. I I was playing it. It is. Great album. Well, thanks a lot. We have Spencer Spencer as my co-host from New York, and... um, Spencer, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you're doing. Um, we know you're doing the Ramones show and all that. Let's talk about what you're doing now. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much into uh, our albums. Judith and I have our albums in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We're in the moment. We just mm-hmm. got off of a show, a MoMA show, Making Music Modern. Fear of Music cover is now in the permanent collection, and um, which I'm very proud of. And Right now, it's it really is the Ramon show. And we did a, a Holly. We did a great show, and everybody loved it. And uh, I send them mm-hmm. of it, and people great response on it. I want to tell you. So I awesome. I just wanted to say that we're here, and I'm ready to go with John and you. Yeah, John's got some amazing music on some amazing things that he's doing. I mean, um, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now and then about your tour and stuff that you're doing right now. Well, I've got a few different bands in New York because, you know, if you want to survive in New York, you can't you can't play too often because people go, oh, yeah, I saw them last week. I saw them last month. So I have a couple of different musical projects. What you heard mm-hmm. uh, before, that was just under my name. I've done t- 10 albums under my name as a singer-songwriter. But I've also had a couple of other bands. One band called Villa Delirium, which is Villa Delirium is um, uh, a project with a woman named Tina Kinderman, and Tina is from Berlin and has worked and has worked with uh, Iggy Pop, and 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 she she's a really great singer. But she also plays the saw, and she plays the saw. It sounds like an acoustic theremin. It's really great. Really, and and it's almost like an it's almost like a um it's almost like an acoustic gothic band goth band, but it's it's got it's got a real sense of humor to it. There's no Mm -hmm. bass in it. Um, uh, uh, There's no bass. Doug Weaselman, who, who's played with uh, Marianne Faithful and Lou Reed, he plays saxophone with them. Um, he plays bass clarinet. And then there's an accordion, and a guy plays pots and pans and boxes. And accordion like and pots and pans? Oh, that's great. Oh yeah, my it's God. like a parlor band gone mad. It's like a 1920s, early 30s parlor band uh-huh. gone mad. But my main project is a band called Tribeca Stan. And Tribekistan mm-hmm. is a ten-piece world music band that um, has uh, four horns in it, and marimba, and accordion, and keyboards, and two drummers. And I play mandolin, um, oh. flute, sitar, banjo. And wow. We play, we play. It's really that's our main thing, and and that's um, it, we play music from. Everywhere. I mean, that's why we called it Tribeca Stand because people kept saying, "Where is this music from?" And it was like, <laughs> "Well, oh, that's we just awesome. 
our own country. My partner Jeff Green and the band came up with a name uh, Tribeca Span, and he plays all these odd it. instruments that he collects from wherever he goes. And we've had um, that band's been together seven years, and we've had five albums out now. And the latest one is called Goddess Polka Goddess, and that's mm-hmm. where you got, and that's where you heard um, uh, that's the opening song. Repo Rodeo comes from uh, Goddess Polka Goddess. Mm. Love that song. We're going to end hey, with that to, today. I, I, John, and I want to mention your album on the show. It's called The Drunken Wind of Life, the poem yeah, song yeah. of Tin Yurvik. And uh, what record label is it on? It's uh, uh, Smiling, Smiling Fez. Yeah, Smiling and where can Fez. people get it? Uh, they can just go on go online, you know, look up, look up my name or com or just Facebook friend me and, and I'll get it. Yeah. It's, it's on, on Bandcamp, band yeah. of course, you know. Well, you know what I like John, about your John album is that you, exper- you experiment with instruments, it seems like. You know, John, I mean, you get into different yeah. type of instrumentation. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's always been the thing for me, you know. Um, I started out as a singer-songwriter playing at Folk City and the late 70s, and I just noticed that everybody was playing guitar all the time, and if there was a jam, there were nine guitar players, and it was like, this is getting kind of stupid, you guys. Um, <laughs> you know, I could play mandolin or harmonica or flute or some banjo with that. Mandolin! I love that. Yeah. That's my main instrument, it. mandolin. And, and, um, I heard about it. So what that. happened was, I started working with I started working as a sideman because it was like, you know, adding color and, and to mm-hmm. these kind of folk songs and everything. And then, then I ran into the Violent Femmes. They were playing at, at Oak City, and that one must have been about 1982 or 83 or something. And I went, I wound up doing a couple of tours with Violent Femmes. And, um, and it that just must kind have been of always and, and Brian Brian is a multi instrumentalist. He's not just a bassist, he's a multi instrumentalist and we had a band together for a while. Uh did some records for SST and uh where we were always just kind of like, you know, inspired by people like Yusuf Latif and Don Cherry and Art Ensemble of Chicago and Ross on Roland Kirk who I wrote my first book about. Uh, I wrote the first biography of Ralph Swan and and um, you know I mean these great multi instrumentalists and who are doing it in jazz why couldn't it happen in like a rock or a folk or a you know whatever another setting than that I want to ask you mm-hmm. John I want to ask you a question you have certain yeah. instruments on here are very interesting that I don't know about symbolum or symbolum a symbolum is a is a uh, a hammered dulcimer that the gypsies play. Wow. <clears throat> if, if you've ever seen a gypsy band and they have like a piano, it's a piano that doesn't have keys on it. You hit, mm-hmm. just hit the strings directly with hammers, just like a hammered dulcimer. Wow. It's a really cool. That's great. Band. Our friends from mm-hmm. Croatia, uh, she's like every year, Gordon is voted best cymbal player in Croatia. Popular instrument in Croatia, Hungary with gypsies in Romania. Um, it's it's a portable piano is basically what it is. Wow. Yeah. That's great. I, mean, I just you know, yeah, you, the, the, you know, go I ahead. I wanted Holly, to sorry. ask. I know, no, no, that's okay. I wanted to I wanted to bring up John is not only a musician, he's also a published author and journalist. So um, you know, that's I'd like true. to talk a little bit about that. I'd like yeah. to talk about that part of it too, how that correlates sure. with your music because it's really interesting. Um, and I know that you've done some musical biographies also, so let's talk about what that is all about. Well, I went to school in Minneapolis in the 70s, and mm-hmm. I was really doing the folk kind of thing before Elvis Costello showed up and blew our minds. You know, I saw him on his first tour, and I had been playing like kind of a Leo Kotke-ish, Ride Cooter kind of stuff, and... I would go see somebody play, like, you know, at the Extempore Coffee House or one of those places. And then um, I was a photographer at the time uh, in art school, and I would take pictures of, like, John Prine and Leo Kotke or, you know, whoever was playing at these, uh, Norman Blake, whoever was playing, like, at these clubs. And 
I'd, I'd run over to the uh, Minneapolis Tribune and I'd try to get myself published in the paper, you know, with the reviews. And then I'd read the reviews and they'd say that uh, somebody was playing a mandolin when it was a banjo or that they were mm-hmm. saying that it was, a, it was a pedal steel guitar and it was a dobro or something like that. And I was like, Jesus Christ, man, I could write a better review than this, and it pays more. So I started writing reviews, which, of course, puts put wow. you in an odd position as a musician who writes reviews because then all your musician friends want you to write reviews about them. And then if you say something that they don't particularly like, uh, then, you know, it puts you in a very odd position. But what happened was I was basically a touring musician until I was 40 years old, and then I had a thyroid problem and I couldn't go on the road. And um, uh, I had to take off like three or four months, and I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. Um, and Ross on Roland Kirk was always an enormous inspiration to me. I've always loved his music. He's a, he was a blind genius, multi-instrumentalist who recorded for Atlantic Records and also for Warner Brothers. And Ian Anderson copied his flute style and became famous with Jeff Rotol with Ross on Roland Kirk's flute style. And I used to play one or two of his songs all the time. We played Tribeca Stan on one of our albums. We we play uh, uh, one of his songs. And and even guys in my own band didn't know who he was. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write an article so the world will know who Ross on Roland Kirk was. And I thought, okay, maybe it's going to be an Esquire or something. And I just kept working on it, and I met Joel Torn, who was the great producer who produced, discovered, you know, Ross on Ross on Kirk and and Mose Allison and uh, Yusuf Latif, and also worked with the Neville Brothers, did Fayo on the Bio by the Neville Brothers, and worked with uh, Bette Midler and. Oh, he, he was a guy who always wanted him to produce one of my records. In fact, he put that record out that he just played, uh, Drinking Coffee. He put that out on his label that was on Label M. So Joel wrote the liner notes and put out my record. He never produced one of my records. But he started introducing me to all these different people. And I wrote, and, and it turned out not to be an article, but a book on Russell and Roland Kirk called Bright Moments. Wow. And then after that, oh, I was wow. like, okay, are you going to write another jazz book? Like, who are you going to write about? You know, Miles, Monk, what are you going to do? And it was like, uh, I'm not a jazz writer. I wrote this book because the person was, the story of the person was what was important. And the next thing I did was I wrote a book on Towns Van Zandt. <clears throat> because I think that Towns Van Zandt was one of the greatest songwriters in the 20th I saw century. That. Yeah. And most people yeah. aren't hip to it. And yet when you talk to, like, when you interview people, whether they're Willie Nelson or, uh, you know, Amy Lou Harris or Steve Earle or whoever you're talking to, they'll all say to you, he was as great of a songwriter as, you know, Dylan, Neil Young, John Prine, Tom Waits, you name it. He, his stuff can stand up to all of them. And so I did that book, and that won the Deems Taylor Award. Uh, that was 2007, which was a really nice thing. It was like uh, I thought, okay, now the door is open for me to go wherever I want to go. And then, of course, the market crashed, and um, that really deeply affected publishing, and nobody really reads print very much anymore unless we're over 40. And, um, and then I did a book on Roy Orbison. And which was a oh, really interesting. Well, I wanted yeah. to write something about one of the great Sun artists, you know. Whether uh-huh. and, and look, like Cash wrote his own books. Elvis was covered by Peter Guralnik. Nick Tosh's mm-hmm. book on uh, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis is genius, called Hellfire. If you've never read that book, it's really one of the greatest books in rock. And uh, and Carl Perkins wrote his own book, and I read this really crappy book on on Roy Orbison, and I thought, wow, look at all the people you know that he's connected to. Look at all the lives he touched, and all the people that he worked with. And I thought, I know it's a long shot, but I'm going to do a book on Roy. So that was my last biography that came out two years ago, and then I just did a book on the making uh, and enduring beauty of Rubber Soul for the 50th anniversary uh-huh. of Rubber Soul, and that's called The Spirit Has Flown. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Roy Orbison, getting back to that, he's yeah. one of the people that I wish in my life I had spent more time with and talked to. Really, I just, wow, he was such a great human, just had a beautiful Everyone heart. says that. Everyone mm-hmm. says that. Everyone that I interviewed said that. It was amazing. I wanted to end papers on the book to say, Roy was the greatest guy. Roy was the nicest guy you ever met. He was the nicest mm-hmm. guy in the music business. I mean, and and I finally, everyone who I interviewed said that, but I gave it to Bonnie Raitt in the book. It just seems right that she Bonnie's should have been great. the one. To, yeah. She seems like the right one to go, oh, you know, Roy was the sweetest guy. You just never met anybody. Yeah. He was like, you know, da-da-da-da-da. It just seemed like, okay, I'm going to have Bonnie Raitt say it, because otherwise it's just going to be repeated over and over again in the book. Hey, John, uh, Bonnie Raitt was one of the first people I designed for on a tour. She was doing a tour in Japan. I designed That's T-shirts wrong. for her. And I, had, right. I, I was fortunate enough to meet her. She's amazing. also an amazing, supportive person and a really good person. Oh. You know? Yeah, I used yeah. To did you, did you meet her, Dad? In the 70s, I used, to, I, used to, I used to see her play in, uh, the, at the Triangle Bar in Minneapolis amazing. in the 70s with a band called Willie Nerf and the Bumblebees. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was, she used to get up and sing R&B with them. So it was just, you know, she was there, and she was great. So it was good to see her. Yeah, no, I so, know her father was really instrumental in her music too. Um, did you ever meet her father? No. no yeah, no, no. he was he was big and huge in her music. But you know, um, the book on the Rubber Soul. Um, what inspired you to do that? That book. Well, that was the that was the tipping point. That was the change in the '60s, I think, where everybody started getting much hipper. The Beatles started getting a lot hip. I mean, Dylan was, of course, was already, Dylan was already hip. Dylan was already on it, you know, and the Beatles were picking up on it. In fact, my friend Mitch Blank, who is a Dylanologist, uh, and helped me research some really great stuff for the book, uh, he said, you know, when when people ask him uh, what his favorite Dylan album is, he says Rubber Soul. Because wow. there's so much in, there's so much influence of Bob on that record, but that's the record where the where like inevitably whoever I talked to about it, whether it was John Sebastian or Al Cooper or or, or uh-huh. you know or Howard Kalin from the Turtles or any of those guys from uh, Felix Cavallari, every single one of them said that was the record where they it was, it was just that was the watermark record of the day that was the one that made you go from you know holding ham songs about girls and yeah. you know just kind of to like going wow you know like we could put a sitar on this and we could put some like kind of interest you know interesting arrangement in this and we should make an album that you listen to from beginning to end this is where it all starts I wanted to ask you a question about. I want to ask you a question about the album cover, which you know I'm an album cover designer. Yeah, sure. And and tell us a story about the lettering and the photograph. It's very interesting how they. God, you know, it's been. I'm, I'm so deep in writing this other book right now that I have to like scrape the back of my brain for this. You know, <laughs> I. I, I, I mean, There's something about the lettering, uh, and it, it, people thought it was psychedelic, but it wasn't. You know what I mean? And then. Well, and that then, was the. That was one of the first lettering of that style of that yeah. you know, that trippy trippy style. But the photograph was really the the main thing about how they were projecting slides of right. from the photo session and the slide tilted and it right, stretched it, the right. photograph and and they went wow you know because first <laughs> of all that they they were just getting high for the first time right around that. And then that dentist dropped the acid in their coffee, and then they had the first LSD <laughs> experience. So it was like, you know, it was like right around that time that, um, you know, I'm I'm just blanking on his name, Robert, the photographer. Um, Robert Friedman. Uh, yeah, Robert Friedman. Robert Friedman had done so many other images for them, uh, really right. great photo shoots for them before that and uh, I think that was kind of the last photo session for that Robert did he he did the original cover to to, uh, Revolver that they didn't use 
Really? Maybe, yeah. There, if you oh. check into that, um, he did this like cyclical. It, it looked like it was kind of cyclical, like uh, like uh, you know, uh, spinning out of like a ribbon of all pictures of them. You can find it. It's really interesting. You, you know, it's interesting. They, he did Meet the Beatles too cover, right? With a great. Oh yeah, band. he did. He did all of their really iconic shots up yeah. till then. And and um, and then uh, I mean it was rumored, of course, that John had had an affair with his wife Sunny Sunny Drayton, I believe her name. Oh really? Oh. And she was a model for Pirelli tires, you know, the Pirelli Pirelli tire calendar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, right. I know Pirelli. Have, right. They used to have yeah. very sexy calendars, and she was a. Calendar girl, and they lived in the same in the same building at one point, and so I'm not sure exactly what was going on there. I was much more interested in pulling together the history of like you know the influence of all the music and all the mm, poetry, and you know one thing that I'm really proud of and really happy with about that book is you know when you're writing about the Beatles, how the hell do you find anything new to say about them? Oh my God! Uh-huh. And years ago, there was a there's a guy named Ashwin Batish. Ashwin is a wonderful sitar player who plays like pop music on sitar, and his whole shtick is called uh, sitar power. And he lives out here in San Francisco. Oh. And when he first came to in, from India to New York, we met at a radio show, and he wound up. Uh, I got to know him, and and uh, he told me that his father had done the soundtrack to help. His father was a sitar oh. player. Oh, wow. And, oh. and I re- always remembered that. And so I got in touch with him. I said, you know, Ashley, can I talk with your dad? He said, oh, no, he's long gone. But he did write a... Uh, he did write uh, like a diary, like a memoir of his oh, time wow. with the Beatles. It had never been published, and it's in the book. And his memories of, of uh, you know, hanging with George and and trying to teach um, Patty how to play an instrument called the Dillon Ruba, which is uh-huh. uh, kind of right. So it was that was one yeah. nice kind of little piece that got in there, and then. And then interviewing all the different American contemporaries of the time, Sebastian and Felix Cavallari and, uh, you know, Al Cooper and different people, and going, okay, how did this record change your world? Because it did. It was a, it was a game changer. I mean, everybody says, well, why didn't you write a book on Revolver? And Revolver, of course, is genius, and I love Revolver. But this is where it all begins to change. Mm-hmm. Dylan said, oh, I agree. Yeah. Dylan said, "Oh, I get it. You're not cute anymore." You know? <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. They were like stand up. They were they were like one two one two type group marching band type stuff, and all of a sudden, boom! Mm-hmm. Rubber yeah. comes out. It Rubber starts to change in their whole thing, right? Right. And I was just saying, the other thing about Rubber Soul is that it's kind of like a blueprint for relationships. It sort of shows you what you're looking for, how to fall in love, the words to say, and then how to break up. Like, you know, there's a lot of bad breakup songs on that record. George, think for yourself, and John wants to even kill her if he sees her with another man. I mean, God, that was, and Girl is on that record. So you have, like, maybe the first sadomasochistic pop songs since, like, <laughs> Kurt Vile, you know? No, totally. I get it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's funny. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to write. It was a good time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you got, the book has so much, and Holly will agree, I mean, the book has so much info in it. It's unbelievable. I mean, to me, it's like, I pick this book Thanks. up almost every day, and literally there's something I missed I want to read about or I want to pick it up and read. I've told so many people I want you to know, John, to buy, and I have oh, a lot of many friends, they're buying your book. And oh, I, I'm just you. telling you, the info matter. These people are into info. This is a book to buy. Yeah, and I'm mm-hmm. trying to keep it as conversational and humorous and all of that as possible because, you know, otherwise it can get a little dry or a little... It's so funny when you read these interviews on, like, or reviews, excuse me, that people write on, like, you know, uh, uh, Amazon or something and say, oh, I haven't, I haven't learned anything from this book. I'm like, 
People do that. They go on there, and if they don't, if they just have something bad that feeling towards you, they'll give you a bad review. It's really funny. Yeah. They create. Oh, yeah. I'm curious. I know people that are authors, and they say, "Oh my God, this person created yeah. like six new accounts, and they've gone on there and given me all these horrible reviews." To yeah, bring the ratings really down. Crazy. I mean, yeah, Judith yeah. and I have done 21 pop culture books, so we've been on Amazon a lot. Wow. And one person sent in a review, a bad review on a book. And you know what the reason was? Because he couldn't open up. He didn't know. He wasn't tech heavy. He didn't know how to open up the disc. So he wrote this bad oh, review. God. And, it was, all, and it, was, it was all about him not understanding the tech mind, which is ridiculous. I mean, they should screen people. They should absolutely yeah, scream Yeah, they that. have no way yeah. of doing that, but I think they will. Yeah, you're right, I think that's going to go into place. But, you know, John, I wanted to um, – your, book, your, books your books are amazing, and your music – uh, how did you get Thank into you. music? How did how did that all? How could I not? How did I get into it? I, I think I, I know. I mean, it. start yourself. It was opening of Rubber Soul. Not. I was. No, I was, but I mean, I, you personally playing. I grew now. up in a, I grew up in a family around people that were into sports. I liked baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was eight years old. I saw the Beatles and Ed Sullivan. Uh, and and everything changed for me. And my sister had already been listening to Harry Belafonte and some light jazz like Herbie uh, Mann and 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 Stan Getz and stuff like that. And I liked that. And she had a couple of Dylan records which were really interesting. It was like wow, you know, Peter Paul and Mary. Okay. And then my parents took me down to uh, Jamaica when I was eight years old, right before I heard the Beatles on Ed, on, on no Ed Sullivan. And I just the whole time all I did was follow around these three guys who went from hotel to hotel that were just nothing else interested me. They were just they were going from one hotel to the next with two guitars and singing harmony and a guy shaking maracas. And until those guys let me shake those maracas, you know, they were just not going to be rid of me. That was it. No, that was it. That was your first with that. Yeah, talk about yeah. instruments, all the different instruments you play. So you like got in, you got introduced to something there in Jamaica. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I think at camp, I went to a camp. You know, we were all learning how to sing and play kumbaya, and and uh, <laughs> you know, we shall overcome whatever the hell we were thinking we were going to overcome when we were eight years old. Our counselors uh-huh. or something. You know, what are we going to overcome? Um, but, you know, <laughs> that was all happening then, that whole bit with the uh, the folk thing was happening because civil rights was happening. And so it was like right around then. But And then uh, this is very interesting because I've been playing with a guy named Roy Blumenfeld from the Blues Project. And probably the first real band that, like, I saw, that I, you know, that I heard, that I really thought maybe I could do this was the Blues mm-hmm. Project. Right. Because they, oh, wow. they, they were local New York guys. They yeah, that's Al Cooper in that, right? Al Cooper's yeah, in that. Yeah, and Al Cooper played on um, the second Tribeca Stan album. He's on two tracks there. Really? You I know, I used to, John, I used to trade records with him in college. Wow. He came to my door one time. I can tell you the story, though. It's great. I get a knock on the door. I open it up, and I see this guy with sunglasses and a paper clip for a tie clip. And he says, you Spencer Drayton? I said, yeah. He said, well, I hear you're the best rock and roll collector in the dormitory. (laughs) And then we we traded records, and then I didn't hear from him, and that's what happened. He went right to Blues Project, went right into the art. Great story. Yeah. Well, I'm actually going to see Al next week. Um, going up to um, going up to Boston because uh, His Eric poor von voice. Schmidt. John, your voice, your voice. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah, I got to sing tonight. I don't know how I'm going to do You're it. You're going to have to rest, man. <laughs> yeah. He does. He's singing tonight. He's in San Francisco, and yeah. uh, you're playing t- tomorrow, and then you're playing a couple private parties. Oh yeah, we're well, playing. Here, I got it. Rice sent me an email while we were talking. So here, let me see. Where is it? Uh, let's see, he's just sent me this thing. I can tell you where it's going to be, Holly. It's going to oh, be the wow. Sonoma, Spe- Sonoma Speakeasy in Sonoma. 
Oh, my God. Holly. Yeah, no, 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 no. I know where that is. Yeah. <laughs> I know you. And I, yeah. I'm going to be with uh, you know, Roy Blumenfeld of the Blues Project and uh, David Aguilar, who's a wonderful guitar player. You know, we have the film festival going on in Sonoma right now, so there's a lot of things going on everywhere. Um, there's mm-hmm. bands everywhere, and, and a lot of people should know about this driving mm-hmm. on out of town. It's a good week, you know. And uh, then where do you go when you leave San Fr- leave the West Coast area? Where are you going? Uh, I go back and teach. I teach at, at uh, a History of Rock and Roll at College of Mountain St. Vincent in the Bronx. And I have to oh, take nice. the red eye. I have to take the red eye flight on uh, on uh, Sunday and, and be in class at ten o'clock on Monday morning. <laughs> wow! Yeah, and I'm going. I got to ask you one thing because I got to ask you one thing about that's in the book about the butcher cover. Yeah. What's the story? Tell us the story behind the butcher cover. Well, the butcher cover was um, again Robert Friedman. Um, uh, no, no, that was Whitaker. That was that was uh that was Robert Whitaker who was uh the best name Robert. Um and he was kind of a conceptual artist and a filmmaker and uh in London and um he had this idea of photographing them in uh, butcher coats and <laughs> raw pieces of meat and because he ha- he said he had a dream I believe and then they <laughs> added the they added the babies, of course, the broken babies, oh, and they covered them. And and it was like, a, 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 you know, George Harrison later on said he really regretted it. He thought it was really sick. But he said, you know, it was like they were trying to express them, their feeling about how things were going in Vietnam. Of course, at that time, we were already dropping starting to drop napalm and things were getting oh, were, were escalating way out of control and Brian Epstein controlled the Beatles so that they never said anything in public, you know, uh, about the war. You know, John sort of made that one-off comment about being bigger than Jesus that nobody paid any attention to in England. And then it finally got reprinted in a magazine in the American South and everybody went nuts. So, but yeah, no, it was, they were, that was probably the, the Beatles, Beatles first dalliance with the avant-garde. Yeah. Yeah, you know? it was pretty and avant-garde, then, that's for sure. And then they printed it up, they printed up a couple thousand copies of that. Right. And then, and then, uh, and then of course, the shit hit the fan over it. So they, instead of throwing out the albums or just put, you know, selling the rest of them, they slapped on this other photograph over it, this flooring picture of Paul sitting in a trunk and them standing around. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a real album anyway. Those were right. all out there mm-hmm. from, from Health, from Revolver and Rubber Soul. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, true. Uh, and they met, uh, they met Elvis, right? You have the story about them meeting Elvis. That was interesting. Yeah, uh, I I think that John said that the only thing worse than meeting Elvis was meeting Bridget (laughs) Pardell. Right. Oh, God. Tell me what. What? What? I don't know that story. Wait. Well, I don't care about that. Yeah. About meeting Bridget Pardell? He probably had a bad day with Bridget uh, Holly. Everybody thought, you know, everybody thought no one was good enough for John except for Bridget Pardell. (laughs) <laughs> that was uh-huh. the thing, you know. And when he met her, like she didn't speak English, she didn't speak French. <laughs> she was, he was of course, you know, probably nervous as fucking hell, and so was she. I mean, did you ever yeah. see the footage? Did you ever see the footage uh-huh. of, of John and Bob Dylan together in the in the limousine from Eat the Document? No, I have that? to see that. It's, it's, it's no. just terrible. It's terrible. Really? They don't know what to say to each other, and really? Dylan is hot. Uh-huh. And Dylan's really high, and it all ends with him like them pulling over the side of the road and Dylan throwing up. Oh my God! Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other story I want to ask you about is Bob Dylan playing electric at the Newport, and the story yeah. behind it. Because there are well, different stories. You say Al Cooper says one story, and then the well, Cooper's story, I believe, is the truth. But who wants the truth when you can have a really great story? <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, 
and and That's Barry Goldberg, I think, backs up Cooper and, and saying, look, they only had three songs. That's why the people rioted because they only played three songs. Right, right. You know, they only had rehearsed three songs, and here everybody was there to go see Bob Dylan, and he played a couple of acoustic numbers to round it out. But and and the sound sucked. The sound was terrible. You couldn't hear the words. You know, that's what it was really about. It wasn't like that. People were so deeply invested that oh, Bob has crossed the line. And so, but that happened. I think when he went to England, when you see the Scorsese film. When you see the Scorsese film and their and their uh, and the uh, uh, people over there are saying, you know, he sold out. This is crap. This is corny commercial music, and of course, he's playing with a band. Right. Mm-hmm. Playing some of the best music. I have to find that life. video. Video of John Lennon and uh, Bob Dylan. What? 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 Where would I find I'll it? I'll eat the document. Eat the document. Eat, eat the, the document. document. Okay. Right. By Pennebacker. Pennebacker made it. Pennebacker. Pennebacker. Wow, cool. Yeah, yeah, I have to see that. I have to see it's, that. That's uh, pretty amazing. The, the, you just go on YouTube and put on, you know, Bob Dylan, John Lennon, and, and, uh, yeah. and, and you'll find it. Um, let me ask you a question, yeah. John. I got, I got to ask you a bad question because you mentioned about documentaries. I saw a documentary with Bob Dylan when he was on mm-hmm. tour in England. It was very early, the early one. But Donovan's yeah. in the room. And watched, her again. You know, right. Did did Donovan did Dylan get a, it looks like they don't get along. It looks like Dylan does not get I along think with Dylan Donovan. was so mean to everybody at that point. I think he was like wired on speed and just like, you know, yeah. he was just not in a very good spot. I mean he wasn't very nice to Joan Baez at that point either. I, who mm-hmm. was he nice to at that point? You know, when right. you watch that film you go Wow, I sure love this guy's music, but I don't know if I'd want to be in his presence for very long. I mean, how how often have you met people in the music business where you just went, okay, the next day you just took all their records and went down and traded them in because you knew you weren't going to be listening to that anymore. Oh, no, yeah, totally. When you look at the movie, totally you see one. Donovan looking up to, to Bob, and it's like his God, you know what I mean? And Bob doesn't give a shit, you know what I mean? It's like, well, that's what... I wanted you to tell me. Yeah, that's why I wanted to ask you about that. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. I, I only met Don, I met Donovan a couple of times. He was the nicest guy that you could ever imagine. Yeah, he is. You mm-hmm. know, and you know, I'm sure that he probably was nervous because look, Bob Dylan was uh, he was the hub on the spoke that spun the '60s. You know, right, right. There was yeah. No question. There was no there was no question about it. So it was like everybody was nervous around him. The Beatles were nervous around him. Donovan was nervous around him. You know, I'm, I'm sometimes I'm happy that I never met him because it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like I love his music and his writing so much. And if I had a bad experience with him, it would have really been awful. I mean, I've had that before. You know, where I've met somebody and went, oh, okay. I guess, you know. <laughs> I, I, I met him through the Fabulous Thunderbirds because they designed for the Tough Enough album, which was big. And Bob Dylan was mm-hmm. backstage, and Jimmy Vaughn introduced me to him. And uh-huh. I freaked out. I absolutely freaked out because I didn't know how the hell, you know, I'm <laughs> going. And, and he's, I'm like a kid sometimes, you know. Well, and, you know, he has, that line, he has that line in one of his songs about, you know, how people just don't know how to act when they're around True. him. And, yeah. and, and I had a friend who had dinner at a big party with Paul McCartney once, you know, and everybody was sitting at the table waiting for Paul to come downstairs. And Paul came downstairs and he just said, hey, Let's just all make believe that I'm just another guy, okay? So it doesn't have to be this big deal that you're having dinner with a beetle. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, because everybody was so like, everybody. I I used to know Sam Shepard, and and I played some shows with Sam Shepard, and Mm -hmm. man, you know, I mean, he used to, I don't know if he used to smoke those big cigars because he liked them or just to put up a wall around himself. Right, wow. Interesting. That's interesting. So, I know that you played with Patty Smith too, haven't you? Well, and Lori Anderson. Because of, John Prime. Yeah. Because of um because of uh Sam. 
uh, Patty was there, and we were doing mm-hmm. Factory. We were doing that song Factory Girl by the Stones, and mm-hmm. uh, and and Bob Newworth was in the audience, and 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 uh, I I was with um, uh, I was with Peter Stample from the Holy Molarellies. Oh, I love so, Peter. <laughs> we had a we had a duo for a while, oh. and and a lot of people started showing up at this at this gig, especially when Sam started to sit in with us, mm. and so Patty came up and I because I said something like, "Hey, any you famous people want to sing a song with us?" <laughs> ah, funny. And, and she said something like, "What are you gonna do?" And I said, "Factory Girl," and she said, "Oh, I love that song," and so she came up and she sang with us and. I, I mean, you know, you talk about really super nice people. Lenny Kay is probably the nicest guy yeah, yeah. you ever met yeah, in the music business. And, and Lenny, hey, really by the way, John, guy. Lenny brought the forward to my 45 book, and we're interviewing now for Punk Globe magazine right now. Lenny. Cool. Yeah, Lenny's in this new book. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. Right yeah, he's a he's sure. like such a nice person. He's just like you said. Great, great guitar player, great guy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Yeah. So, John, um, where are you? Um, you're going to play tonight, and then you're going to go back to New York on Sunday. I'm leaving on Sunday. And then you're back yeah, in and school? Then, um, yeah, I, I'm finishing this new book for the University of Texas, which is like okay. um, really kind of like, it's, it's called Friend of the Devil. It's um, the glorification wow. of the outlaw in, in Western song from uh, Robin Hood's a rap. So it covers oh, really? everything from from I fought the law and the law won to I shot the sheriff to songs about Robin Hood to uh to Young Thug and K R S one and uh you know, it covers everything. It's it's a major tome of uh, outlaw songs and the history of outlaw culture and music. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. I want to make an announcement really quick again today. If you missed the beginning of the show, we have John Cruz and myself and Spencer Drake. And uh, the show will be available on iTunes afterwards and also on Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio as a special edition of the Indie Cafe. Uh, I wanted to uh, um, see if uh, we wanted to give you a little break with your voice. I wanted to know, yeah, Spence, did you have anything more you wanted to talk to John? No, about? I think, uh, yeah, I think he's he's got to rest his voice. Yeah. I agree, Holly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that that well, throat coat better kick in. No, well, I want yeah, to see you. Maybe I'll, I'll head whiskey. out there tonight. Yeah, maybe huh? I'll head out there tonight. Maybe I'll head out there tonight. I know what that oh, is. Yeah. <laughs> I know yeah, where we you are. You know where it is. Yeah. Well, I want to tell everyone it's Friday. Please do not drink and drive. Um, I have to say that because, you know, we're in such a crazy area where everybody just drinks and drives and they don't have a designated driver. And uh, also it's the first weekend of um, after spring, right? This is like the yeah. first weekend after spring. Yeah, so enjoy it, and uh, you must be loving this weather that we're having. Oh, you're in the Bay Area, so it's a little bit colder out there. Colder I was in just the down, city right now. I was just down in L.A. It was great. Yeah, well, it's really nice yeah. right now. We're having some really yeah. good weather. Fortunately, we're not having our uh, two or three weeks of rain straight forward right now. And um, for everyone out there listening, um, we will be back next week. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm hoping next week on Wednesday I'm going to be doing a show with Ron Apria, um, who's a saxophone player himself. Uh, John, you should meet him. He did a uh, John Lennon jazz album. Um, That's cool. Pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, with uh, Angela De Niro, his wife. And then we're back on on next next Friday, and then the following week I have uh, a really cool show with uh, Jill, who Jill, a friend of mine, who um, recently um, is just now working on a book, and it's going to be really cool. It's a very interesting spiritual show, I think. And uh, we move into pop culture and music, and go straight across the board. So with that, 
Um, we cool. end our we'll show with um, Repo Rodeo. Repo Rodeo, which I said to John before we started the show, this song needs to be on a soundtrack for a movie. A movie. Yeah, a movie. A movie. Listen to me. Have you guys seen Zootopia yet? It's a really cute movie. Yeah. I haven't seen it. it. Well, this song could be cool for Zootopia, the cool. Pixar movie, but um, you got to go see it. But anyway, thank you, John, for being here. Thank, thank you, Spencer. Hey, thanks thank a lot, you, John. Great thank you, everyone. Yep. Have an amazing right. Come Friday. Out and yes, have a good gig, night, John. Have a good gig. Thank you. I thanks will. a lot. Take care. Take care. See you guys, John.